0: You know, while I'm not a pathologist, I have to try to translate sometimes what's in the report to what the patient is reading and explain it in 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 their in a language they understand. So the more I understand from pathology, the more I can actually be that bridge between the pathologist, their report, and the patient and the patient's own understanding of, of her of her cancer diagnosis.
1: Welcome to the People of Pathology Podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Today, we're going to get a view of pathology from outside of the field. Now, we know that pathology interacts with many other medical specialties, so my guest is Dr. Jeannie Shen, who is an oncologic breast surgeon. Throughout this conversation, we'll be talking about breast cancer surgery, as well as breast cancer screening and treatment, but we'll also talk about her relationship and interaction with pathologists why she thinks that relationship is so important and how she teaches that to her residents and fellows all right here's dr Jeannie shen this will be interesting because uh, you're a surgeon so we're going to be getting kind of the surgeons sort of outside view of pathology uh kind of your relationship with pathology and pathologists so this this would be a interesting perspective i think so let, let's go back to the beginning for you then I'd, I'd like to know like who or what inspired you to become a doctor
0: I am one of those lucky people who uh, knew that I wanted to be a doctor when I was five years old. I just always have been inspired to help people. I mean, even in kindergarten, I think my my teacher told my mother that I was a self-appointed welcome wagon. Uh, <laughs> I would go around and introduce myself to all, all the new kids and walk them and show them around school and where the milk was, you know, and the bathrooms were. I just have always... Um been that my nature is to want to help people and I like science. And so being a doctor was very was a very natural um choice for me. Okay, okay
1: that's interesting. Like from a very young age, you, you like it was going to be doctor and not some kind yeah. of other scientist? A doctor.
0: Nope. A doctor.
1: Interesting. Okay. I will
0: say that I also maybe I've never really maybe given him enough credit, but I'm my pediatrician, um, Dr. Arthur Kong, he was a wonderful pediatrician. I actually Stay with him until I was—I really aged out of being able to see him as a nineteen-year-old. But just going to him, and even though it's scary, you know, going to a doctor's office, uh, he always, always soothed me, soothed my parents down, and uh, again, just reinforce this idea of of being a doctor that I could help a lot of people.
1: Okay, I see that makes sense. So then, going along through school, like, did you? How did you develop like like the plan, like the the things that you needed to do to get into medical school?
0: So I think in a way it was easier for me because knowing that I wanted where I wanted, I needed to be, it was just a matter of figuring out, you know, how to, how to get, ensure that I got there. So even, you know, in high school, I did a lot of volunteering with hospitals and at nursing homes. Um, I was a typical candy striper and um, by undergrad at UCLA, um, I participated in a few like societies that were uh, geared towards sort of volunteer services in underserved clinics um, like in Venice. And uh, actually, my initial um, aspirations was never to be, a. I never thought I would be a surgeon. It's funny, I ended up here. I had this impression that uh, surgeons were these dumb mechanics that other doctors, internists, the super smart ones would figure out the problem and the surgeon would just like, you know, me fix. Um, so I initially went into medicine, actually very inspired to be a women's health physician. So a lot of my uh, volunteer work was in women's health clinics and shelters and so forth. By the time medical school came, I had focused it more on OBGYN and actually I was interested in uh, fertility treatments. So I did some research for the with the NCI and fertility and patients with polycystic ovarian disease. I was all set actually to be an OBGYN and then eventually do a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology. When I rotated through surgery was my very last rotation of my third year of medical school. And it was just to get through. And I, I fell in love with surgery. I really saw for the first time what it meant to be a surgeon. And I realized that instead of being these dumb mechanics that just like fix problems, we were internists who could operate we could we would we would not only do do be the detectives and figure out the problem but we could put our hands inside somebody and actually potentially uh fix the problem and so i at the very end of my third year of medical school which is when you declare what you want to specialize in i totally changed gears and um refocused my attentions on in in general surgery and so i uh Went into general surgery, believe it or not, wanting to be a cardiac surgeon. That's what really motivated me. I kind of gave that up pretty early on in residency. And I kind of came full circle back to women's health uh, because I was lucky enough in my training, UC San Diego, uh, to work with um, Dr. Ann Wallace. She is a double boarded in both general and plastic. So she's a breast cancer specialist. She actually does her own cancer surgeries and reconstruction. At that time, this is back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, there really, the idea of a breast specialist was very, very new, but working with with this attending of mine, Dr. Wallace, and being with her in the the office, seeing how she interacted with patients, seeing the amount of time she took with patients and developing these relationships, these long-lasting relationships, it brought me full circle. I realized I could be a woman's health physician, but I could also be a surgeon. And I actually feel incredibly lucky to have trained in an era now that you there are that breast cancer surgery is recognized as its own specialty.
1: All right. So a couple of things about what you just said. First, is it sounds like you had a pretty strong mentor in you said Dr. Wallace. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I feel like having a, a mentor like that is, is really important. And then the other thing you said, how she was building relationships, these sort of long-term relationships with her patients, which is another thing that's, it's, I think very important, especially when it comes to, you know, you know, uh, cancer surgery.
0: Right. Right. And so actually when I came out in, I finished residency in 2003 and I went towards the end of residency when I, uh, it's clear that this is my going to be my, my focus, my passion for the rest of my life. I'll be honest. Some doctors, some of my attendings said, well, you don't need a fellowship. You're a woman. You want to take care of breasts, go take care of breasts. Uh, okay. But again, this is a new, it was a, it was a burgeoning field and um, these breast surgical oncology fellowships were um, arising. And uh, I was lucky enough to be chosen to uh, do my fellowship md anderson and just to put in context for this is 2003 i was their second breast cancer fellow so they've now had almost 20 generations of breast surgical oncology fellowships but at that time it was that new of a concept having a, a dedicated breast surgical oncology fellowship but it was i would say critical to um my education and shaping the physician that i am today I think, particularly with breast cancer, what we do as surgeons, we have to know much more than just doing the surgery in the operating room. We have to understand all the, you know, and work very closely, actually, with all the other disciplines that that go into taking care of a single breast cancer patient. So, my fellowship not involved not just being in the OR, but um, I rotated through, you know, breast radiology. I spent a month with our breast pathologists looking at slides, going to do site FNA and looking at cytology, medical oncology, radiation oncology, plastic surgery. I by no means am an expert in any of these, but working very closely with the other specialists and the other disciplines very much helped educate me and make me a better, more well-rounded uh, breast surgeon.
1: Yeah, I can understand that. Just having an understanding of what everybody else is doing and the part that they play in, in the the care of the patient that that's it's got to make you a better surgeon or a better you know whatever your specialty is having that understanding of what everybody else you know is bringing bringing to the table yeah you know I saw a, a video it was like a video interview with you and you mentioned something that I wanted to ask you about you said that surgeons have driven technology and advancement and I'm, I'm curious what did you mean by that and like what what kind of technology and, and advancements are you talking about there
0: I think because surgeons often are the for patients the first person the first oncologist that that they see especially for early stage breast cancer so and, and we are the ones that are interfacing with radiology pathology and then the captains as we develop the plan with of the we're te- the captains of the team initially as we develop the plan with medical and radiation oncology that we have a very special relationship with the patients and so we. We get a lot. I get a lot of feedback from patients, both in, in all fronts, in terms of their radiology experience, what worked, what didn't work for them, and you know, medications and radio and radiation-wise. And so, I think we are uniquely positioned to get that feedback from patients firsthand, and then be able to work hand in hand with our colleagues to identify deficits and areas that we can improve upon. I, I think I chose the wrong, maybe not deficits, but definitely areas that we can improve um, upon. So a very, you know, a, a, a simple example is just the patient I saw this afternoon. She has dense breasts. And so, you know, we use mammogram. And we recognize, you know, that when you have dense breasts, the mammograms, sometimes the sensitivity is lower and patients ask us, they ask us, well, what else can I do? What else can I have? And so working then with our radiologists to say, okay, in these dense breast patients or this select group of patients, you know, let's explore other options. And so working hand in hand, and again, no means on our own, we're a whole part of a team working very closely with radiology, developing, you know, better screening techniques for women with dense breasts. I think that surgeons are unique in that we bring, we can, we have access to the patient. Does that makes sense. I mean, compared to a pathologist and a, and a radiologist and even often medical and radiation oncologist,
2: mm-hmm. we are,
0: since we're the first person they see, if there are opportunities for new screening trials or new treatment trials, we have that, that relationship and ability to, to talk to the patients about these different clinical trials and help and help, therefore, develop new technologies and drive advances in screening and in treatment. I think one of the interesting things, though, is that we have driven advances in in um, you know in, in other fields and in surgery. It's been a little bit of the opposite in that, if anything, one of the biggest advances in the breast cancer surgery is that we're de escalating breast cancer surgery. You know, more and more, we're finding out ways to conserve the breasts. We are finding ways to limit the extent of lymph node surgery. There are, you know, there's uh, ongoing research in using ablative techniques to um, avoid surgery altogether. And it's it's interesting. It's surgeons, breast surgeons in particular, that are that are driving this resource, this research, in doing less surgery. I think that's actually very it's very cool. It speaks to our commitment to our patients. It's not about us operating and operating. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't make our patients' lives better by giving them more surgery. Breast surgeons realize that if anything, if we can find that less surgery gives them as good a result from the cancer perspective with a better quality of life, then we're willing to do less surgery to give them that better outcome, which I think is very unique to the world of breast cancer surgeons.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. It's almost like the uh, you're being and instead of doing more surgery, you're being, I guess, more precise with with the surgery that you that you are doing.
0: Mm-hmm. If that makes and trying sense. to do less, if less is just as good, then we do mm-hmm. we do less because we really, you know, especially now with advances in um, not just surgery and uh, but adjuvant therapy. There's you know the, the number of breast cancer survivors continues to increase every year. And so our patients are, are are surviving their breast cancer. And so what can we do as surgeons to limit the the side effects uh, for the survivors and give them a better quality of life? So surgeons drive um, advances in treatment, I think, in, in other fields. And if anything, a lot of the surgical re- uh, clinical trials are looking at less surgery.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And yeah, I, I feel like, you know, breast cancer is one of it's almost like one of the success stories when it comes to cancer treatments along with maybe colon cancer Uh, because like you're saying there's there's more advances in breast cancer treatment and i think a lot of that at least starts at least from screening Mm -hmm. right and and there's been huge advances in breast cancer screening and just you know more comprehensive programs and, and things like that and i'm curious from your point of view as as a surgeon what has been kind of the effect of, of this, uh, of these advancements in screening?
0: So well, they, we, we know, you know, sc- breast screening saves lives and, and that's true. And but what's also interesting is, you know, bringing kind of tying in my last point, when patients are diagnosed at, uh, the earlier they're diagnosed in their, in their, with breast cancer, the small the tumor is, especially if they're, if they have negative nodes, they have, they have a lot more options, not only in terms of the type of surgery, but whether they need to have any radiation afterwards, whether they need to have any lymph nodes taken. We don't routinely take lymph nodes anymore from patients. And so these advances in breast cancer screening with the advent of 3D mammography, you know, um, for high-risk patients, we're using breast MRIs or accelerated breast MRI protocols. But as we identify tumors at smaller and smaller sizes, Clinically node negative, it actually gives us, again, an opportunity to, to de escalate treatment. So it would not be necessarily um, wrong nowadays for uh, a postmenopausal woman who comes in with a small clinically stage one node negative breast cancer. You know, in the past, she would have had surgery uh, with, a lump, with this breast surgery, lymph node surgery, radiation, and hormone therapy nowadays, or maybe even chemo, nowadays, this same patient might get away with simply a lumpectomy and a hormone-blocking pill. And we do less surgery, we can omit radiation, um, we're more selective in who we use chemotherapy on. And that actually, a lot of the reasons we can do that is because that this breast cancer screening's effectiveness has 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 improved now, and it caught these patients at earlier and earlier points in, their, in the course of their um, di- cancer diagnosis
1: what what do you think about like because sometimes i hear people thinking that, or or saying that there's too much uh, screening like it's too often or it's too you know, like it causes undue extra testing or extra scanning and sometimes biopsies of what's you know relatively sometimes yeah. benign tissue things like that what 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 do you think of, about that kind of opinion
0: I mean i think i think first i think there's there, there there's kind of two parts to the answer the first part is that it's led to a lot of confusion about what what the screening guidelines are. As of this point, there are actually six different society published guidelines, if you can believe, and they're all a little bit different. So the the American College of Gynecology versus American College of Radiology versus American College of Surgeons versus the U.S. Preventive Task Force versus American Cancer Society. I mean, they're all a tiny bit different in when. And when we start uh, uh, screening mammography, when we stop screening mammography, how frequently they should be screened, and so forth. And part of the pro- what, what what part of the problem this has led to, Dennis, is there are some patients who are literally just not getting screened because their their primary doctors like can't quite. We're not making we're not being clear enough. I think that's one of the the, the areas we need to work on. The the, okay. the cancer doctors are not being clear enough, and so they're so confused. That they're not being screened at all. That's like terrible, right? Um, So that's one thing I yeah. think that confuses it. Then in terms of over-screening, under-screening, I think that, I mean, the, the, the data is there. I mean, I just have to spend the time to explain to patients, you know, you can start screening at 40 or 50, depending on, you know, your, your risk. If you have a family history, we start screening earlier. If you don't, then usually the guidelines say later. Um, and then when you stop, some of the guidelines, they stop at 70. Others say 75. Others say when you uh, as long as that as long as you have at least a 5 to 10 year predicted life life expectancy and you're healthy enough to ex, to accept treatment you should keep going so we do have patients who are screening into their 80s who are healthy i think in general that you know these screening over uh, there are benchmarks that if you're going to an an accredited radi- radiology facility which most of the ones in this area are in, Lo- in Los Angeles county there are benchmarks that are set on you know what percent 10% of patients should be coming back for callbacks 20% of patients should be having positive biopsy. So if you have, if you're being, if you're calling back 5% of your patients, you're probably missing cancers. This is based on clinical trials, right? Um, I mean, there are, and, and in terms of like biopsies, if you're doing, if 50% of your biopsies are positive, you're probably not biopsying enough people. But if only 10% of your biopsies are positive, you're over biopsying it. So there are certain benchmarks that are set in place for these radiology facilities. They have to report and to remain accredited to ensure that we're not over screening, we're not over biopsying but I, I think these are these are important benchmarks to, to keep track of, so that patients don't feel like we're we're bringing them in for for excess unnecessary biopsies. In general, though, you know, I tell the patient is, I mean, you know, in terms of screening, yeah, I could if you screen every other year. Maybe in the long term, the mortality is no different, but the difference could be again. I catch you in the I catch you in the one year, and I can do a lumpectomy and an endocrine therapy. I catch you in two years; you might the lumpectomy, lymph node dissection, radiation, chemo, and endocrine therapy. Maybe your prognosis, long mortality, long term, is the same, but I can offer you so much less invasive treatment if we catch it early. So, I think there still is strong argument to do um, screening mammograms now. You, what you might be also alluding to are the the, they uh, several of the societies have have basically eliminated a self breast exam from their guidelines, and 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 the part of the reason is I think what you were saying is that patient, women come in they don't know what they're feeling they're they're coming in with lumps that are normal breast tissue or cysts, and that leads to an an es- an excess of anxiety unnecessary imaging and maybe even biopsies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's giving women enough credit. I mean, I, I, women who have dense lumpy breasts they still find their own they find their own cancers and so what I find interesting is from some of these these guidelines where they they, they eliminate self breast exams well but there are also published studies showing that about a third to 40 percent of cancers are found by the patients themselves so how can you how can you just a, a blanketly say stops checking your own breasts women find their own cancers now it's a matter again of us in our oncology community, educating them about if you feel a lump, it doesn't mean you have cancer. You know, here's what we look for. And as, as I, as I do um, uh, outreach in the communities, I I do talk about this. The lumps you feel most of the time are not going to be cancer. You know, if you're, if you're having, if you're still premenopausal, you wait, you wait through a cycle. If it persists, you come in, if it goes away, then it's nothing, you know, in a, in a postmenopausal woman, you should not developing a random new breast lump coastline plasum women should not be developing new lumps and so if you feel a lump you probably need to come in and have that lump evaluated but so I think the idea of over over screening again it's I think that's very subjective and I, it's hard to argue when you are seeing so many these women that are being screened coming in with such early small cancers it, it's hard to under understate the importance of screening at this point
1: yeah that makes sense it's Yeah. I I wonder, like some of the statistics and these things and things like that, which, okay, fine, these are the standards and whatever. But if you're the one person that
0: if it's you, exactly.
1: Yeah. And and if it saves your life or, you know, allows you to have a less invasive surgery like you were talking about earlier, you know, that's certainly worth it to you.
0: That's, that's how I see. I mean, I have like, you know, 72 year olds and I'm like, okay, if you do screening and I catch it when you're 72, we'll do a lumpectomy and then give you a hormone blocking pill. Really very little impact on quality of life. If you don't screen, you can come in, we'll, we'll find your cancer or probably won't be till you're 75 or 76. But now you're looking at a mastectomy, an axi section, chemotherapy, radiation, and a pill. And maybe the 10 year survival is the same, but man, your life, your quality of life is a heck of a lot better if we catch it early.
1: Yeah, and that, that usually
0: convinces them to continue screening.
1: I, I can see that. that. That makes a lot of sense to me. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Jeannie Shen. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses mm-hmm. and other resources developed by lab specialists like us, for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Okay, whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there is one thing that we all need, comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California and they've been making high quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just bought a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, and I got to tell you, they are so comfortable. I might even be wearing them right now. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Oh, yeah. And while you're there, make sure you sign up for their loyalty program, where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Jeannie Shen on the People of Pathology podcast. Now, along the lines of screening, so at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, you know, we saw hospitals shutting down and and screening procedures for lots of different kinds of cancers were being stopped because there was risk of exposure to patients. And I've seen some studies come out that that say that because of that and, and the length of time that these screening procedures were stopped, that we might see an increase in many different kind of cancers uh for the next decade or more i'm curious of what are your thoughts on that when it comes to uh breast cancer
0: um i think we are still playing catch up i think with with those patients that that miss screening or missed a few years i the the studies are a very much a reflection of what we see in day-to-day practice uh, we are seeing women who um uh are coming in with much more advanced disease than um, we were seeing prior to the pandemic, and I think it's either because they weren't being screened, or even worse, they had a lump that basically they put off coming in to get checked out, be due to the fears about the COVID pandemic or coming in to be evaluated. And suddenly, the, these lumps the uh, dentists have been there for like two, two and a half years. I mean, right. You know, depending on the tumor biology. If it's a if it's a you know favorable histology maybe it just got bigger you know but some of these are not they're triple negative they're her two positive they're coming in with with very advanced disease and or metastatic disease and it's it's really sad you know knowing that that that, that that's one of the not yet it, you can't calculate the co- this this part this cost um that the COVID pandemic you know resulted in that the cost to to human life in, in the delay in diagnosis and and resulting, you know, met, locally advanced and or metastatic disease that has resulted for for this, you know, there's about there's maybe up to 20, 25% of cancers that are the more aggressive type. And those are those are the ones that we're seeing coming in um, clearly that um that were that were impacted by the the delays due to COVID.
1: Yeah, I think this is something that we're not going to know the impact of COVID. Uh, you know, throughout.
0: I think that's very fair. A a good decade.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because not only the people that are coming in with more advanced disease, but then there's the people who, you know, their screening was canceled and then they just never came back. Correct. Right. Right. Which is Mm -hmm. even more scary, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So since this is a pathology themed podcast, I kind of want to, tie in so your relationship as as a surgeon with with pathology and your relationship with pathologists so can you can you talk about that like what is your relationship with the pathologists you work with
0: so i'm i feel like i'm actually very close to my pathologists you know for when i do um most of the time when I'm doing a surgical resection, particularly for breast conservation, like a lumpectomy, uh, my training did involve intraoperative margin assessment um, using both radi- specimen radiography and pathology. So actually my cases, they, the, the, the lumpectomy specimen are are not are X-rayed in the room and then sent to pathology. They gross uh, fresh, they, they ink them, they gross them, they bring them back into the operating room we look at the specimen together. Sometimes it's not what you see, what you feel. It gives me an opportunity then to uh, show them the specimen x-ray and I'll tell them, well, yes, you see the lump here, but you see how the calcifications go to this other margin that you can't see. So I'm going to take more here for you. And I try to use uh, my margin assessment using both the pathologist assessment and specimen x-ray, I think is why my my positive margin rate is is much lower than than what's typically published published positive margin rates for lumpectomy are somewhere between 10 to 20% mine is under 5%. I think it's because uh I work with pathology real time and I trust my pathologists. I absolutely do and um so I see pathologists almost every day I'm in the OR, which is three to four days a week. I I'm, mean, I'm either, I'm either, they're either in the room with me or I'm on the phone talking to them, getting report mm-hmm. results from them. Also, I, I think that the more information we provide, we're very much a team. And I, I, I emphasize that a lot um, to, to patients as well. So first of all, I never rush a pathologist. Their job is, is so crucial to planning all the rest of their treatment. So I've had patients who like call the pathologist directly to rush them and I get kind of upset. Cause I'm like, do you know how important their job is? Their, their job is different between, you know, rushing through it and, and and getting a good margin or not or looking at the immunos and there's a node positive or not. This is the, this is the last person that you should be rushing because that report in black and white is what all of the, your prognosis and all of the rest of your treatment is based on. And it is not something that we need, we should be rushing. I feel incredibly lucky to be working here at, at the Cedars Huntington um, because our pathologists are are very, very experienced. And some of them, as you know, Dr. Sophia Apple, who you had previously is this is their specialty and their passion as well. Mm-hmm. Um so th- they uh not only their reports, you know, looking at the pathology reports, the accuracy of it. I've been in I've been doing this for 18 and a half years and I still uh, there's still, I still have a lot to learn (laughs) and I still see things that I've never heard of. And I'd rather go straight to the expert, like Dr. Apple, you know, rather than, I'm not going to Google and I can PubMed, there can be like two papers on it, two case reports. But I call my, my breast pathologist and she will just, my God, it's like an encyclopedia off top of her head, just start talking about these diseases. And then I can share, I can share that knowledge which you can't find off of Google or PubMed, but I can share that knowledge with my patient. And to be honest, Dennis, it makes me look really good. Makes the yeah. radiologists make me look good. Pathologists make 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 me look good. So I mean, I think you know, partly with my training. I the pathologists at MD Anderson were amazing. They were so patient teaching teaching us uh, surgical fellows. Um, but even now, I I, I I'm very I'm very aware that I have a lot to learn still when it comes to pathology. But working with pathologists and uh, I often tell my residents, you know, go being we go down, we, we watch how they do a frozen section because I want to teach them like here, this is how it's done. Here's a limitation. This is how a negative can be a positive. This is why invasive lobbies are hard to find because they're little purple cancer cells and they look like normal lymphocytes on a frozen section. If you don't go down there and see what they're doing, how can then you really be able to understand and explain what they're doing translate into something for the patient? they're the, you know, having been down there with them is, is it, it, it just gives ultimately for me, I think it makes me a better, when I work close to my pathologist, it makes me a better surgeon and it makes me a better advocate for my patient. And, and again, especially as a surgeon, and I do tell my pathologists this, some of these patients, they will, they will pour over every single line in that 14-page pathology report. They come in with underlines and little stars. They highlight, they write notes in the margins. You know, while I'm not a pathologist, I have to try to translate sometimes what's in the report to what the patient is reading and explain it in, in, in their in a language they understand. So the more I understand from pathology, the more I can actually be that bridge between the pathologist, their report and the patient and the patient's own understanding of, of her of her cancer diagnosis.
1: All right, I, I I love what you're saying here. It's it's f- for you to understand, you know, what the pathologist is doing, and just what you were saying about having your residents uh, watch a frozen section and that kind of thing. Like I think it's some of the best surgeons that I've ever known have been the ones that understood pathology the best. And I think right. it it probably goes both ways. You know, having Neat. pathologists so understand surgery for too. them,
0: they come in and then they realize, oh, this is why you don't do a frozen of a margin. Because breast yes. is fatty. So look at this big fatty node. You see all the little Swiss cheese holes? You can't freeze fat. So you're not going to freeze a margin, right? So right. if you're if you're not down there and seeing it, it's hard for you to understand. And then actually, you, you seem a little bit more ignorant when you're call in the, on the phone calling your pathologist and telling them, well, just freeze my margin. Well, what that tells the pathologist is that you don't know what you're talking about. Because if you actually knew breasts, you, you would know that that's not possible right and right. you know we do these nipple margins for nipple sparing when you're seeing atypia one gland two you know for versus dcis like to have them see that then you understand like why is it sometimes on a core adh low-grade DCIS is very similar or a, a lot of little things i think i'm down there i mean i'm, I'm in the lab i'm doing the frozens i'm I'm watching them cut doing the gross i'm reviewing the radio i have to do the radiology pathology correlation so i'm i'm looking at the pictures with them this is what i see here what do you see here ultimately, I think, is better for the patient. If your surgeon is working closely with the pathologist and understands what they're doing, understands the the their strengths, and also what are the limitations, especially of this interrupt testing. Patients all assume that it's, you know, and I have to explain, well, this is what happens in frozen, and then this is what can happen afterwards, and nobody was wrong, but it's about us being thorough, but for residents, especially who are interested in oncology, I, I bring them down with me and I'm like, now you see, now you see why a negative note on frozen has a small chance of being positive because this is what they're doing and so forth. And again, for them, they all say, you know, it it, it, it does help them understand some of these things a little bit better.
1: Yeah, I t- totally agree. I, I love what you're saying there and what you said too about it's, it's better for the patient. And I think when you can... You know, look at the pathology report with them and explain what's on there. It probably gives them more confidence, uh, just in the treatment that they're going to get, and probably in the, in their prognosis as well. Which is, right. you know, got to be uh, soothing for them. I think. I think. With, yes. Yeah. So that's that's all. Those are all good things. Now you've been talking about working with the pathologists and a little bit about working with the radiologists as well as oncologists. So I'm curious about. Kind of your experience with, uh, you know, people talk about multidisciplinary tumor boards, and which sounds like these are very important. Uh, can you can you talk about that? Like, what's your experience with those?
0: So, multidisciplinary tumor boards, are, I think, are, um, are are definitely opportunities for um, us to learn from each other, and well as well as tap into multiple brains and expertise to try to come up with the best treatment plan for a patient. So multidisciplinary tumor boards for your audience who doesn't know are typically um, cancer tumor boards. We have one dedicated to breast cancer where they would have a radiologist present the images. Um, The pathologist reviews the pertinent pathology from either biopsy or surgery. And then there are surgeons, medical oncologists, and radiation oncologists we often also will have a plastic surgeon, a nutritionist, one of our um, integrative oncology nurse practitioners, um, and even our research our research nurses are are, are there to see if anyone's qualifying for a clinical trial. But the main perp- the primary purpose of these boards is again really to collectively review cases that maybe are not as straightforward, um, that where there is maybe more than one answer or one path, and to try to. Figure out, see if we can come to some type of consensus on what would be the best treatment option for that patient moving forward. I think what's difficult for patients to sometimes understand and accept is that very much medicine is some science and a lot of art, and especially in breast cancer where there are, are is a lot of of research, a lot of clinical trials, not of which all say the same thing. You know oh. how to take those clinical trials, interpret them, figure out which ones are the ones that were well-designed, and then apply them to a particular situation. And so... We use these board, and then I think especially like, you know, as a surgeon, again, as as the first person the patient sees, I do explain the role of radiation and the medicines with either pills or chemo and so forth. Um, and I, you know, I think as a breast surgeon, I, I, I'm fairly knowledgeable, but still, I, I mostly look at clinical trials that are pertaining to breast surgery. And I look for practice-changing trials in the field of medical and radiation oncology. But there are the the number the breast cancer being the most common solid organ cancer in women and the number of clinical trials that are out there, it is difficult, if not impossible, to keep up with all the studies in all the different fields. And so these boards give us an opportunity then to, you know, hear from not even not one, several different medical oncologists and you know, debate. Oftentimes we debate trials and well this trial she would apply for this oh this one yeah but she wouldn't have qualified for that but this trial showed these numbers and actually for me as a surgeon i i mean even though i'm reading the same studies they are man i learn from what how they interpret the clinical the, the trial and the trial results you know as opposed to how how i how i interpreted it so these boards are yet another way that we, um, another opportunity for us to give our patients the best treatment. And I look at it as I tell the patient, you know, instead of me having you see this oncologist and then go get one second opinion, I can literally tap into like four different oncologists at, at this meeting at once, right? And so I can, and 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 if we're lucky, it's a consensus, but sometimes it's not. And I'll tell them, okay, there were four oncologists, three of them said do this and one said do this. And these are the rationale for each, I think based on that, let's talk about what's best, what what we want to do with you. Sometimes I'll tell them it was two versus two. We're split down the middle. Let's you and I, let's you and I talk a little bit and then I'll help you decide what's best for you. But being able to tap into the expertise of, of, of the medical, the radiation oncologists, uh, oftentimes these boards also give us a chance to do radiology and pathology correlation. We ask pathologists questions, you know, we want to, for me, I'm very, very visual. When I see, you know, focally close or or diffusely close, let me see what you mean. Oh my goodness, I see that. Well, oh, that's basically tumor on ink to me. Or, you know what, I see a little fat plane there. I'm okay with that. It's an it's opportunity for us to take a second look even at, at imaging, pathology, and then again, debate the merits of, of different treatment options to see if we can come up with the best solution for the patient.
1: Okay, I love that. That whole kind of collaborative uh, attitude about treatment that that's great you mentioned clinical trials a couple of times and I wonder how do you approach that subject with the patients I mean are they generally receptive to that because some of those are kind of I don't want to say experimental but you know they're they're trials they're trying to do right. to, you know, how, how do you approach that
0: so I mean when I you know. First of all, at our hospital, we're very, we're, we're selective in what the clinical trials we want to open. Okay. We were looking for trials where we really feel that they're answering an, 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 an a very important, unmet, a, a need, an, an, an unanswered question and also trials that we feel we, we can accrue patients to, because these are actually very expensive to run these clinical trials. When I have, we have had, you know, uh, surgical trials open um, and I, I tell patients, in general, the my approach is, you know, we're looking at these are, these are large, generally randomized, like phase two, phase three trials. But we would, like for a phase three trial, you know, we're randomized, we would never offer you less than the standard of care, right? One arm, typically, if they're randomized, is always a standard of care. And then the other arm is something that we believe, based on other clinical trials leading up to this, that may even be better either be better and or be the same with less side effects. So for instance, um, a, a trial that we recently closed, it was a multi, it was a, a cooperative group trial. Patients who pre- presented with node-positive breast cancer undergoing pre-op chemotherapy, if they had a complete clinical response, meaning the node now reverted to normal on exam and imaging, they were offered a sentinel biopsy. And if the node was positive, they were offered in the clinical trial, either re- randomized to a full lymph node dissection, which is the standard of care, versus no no further lymph node surgery, and then we'll radiate and give endocrine therapy. And this is based on, again, other smaller studies suggesting that it's equally safe. And so for these patients, you know, we can do a full lymph node dissection, but you may not need it. There's it, a lot of morbidity of it, and we're trying to cut back on the, the the side effects of it. So when you present it more like we're offering you an option of standard versus maybe something that might be better, Patients generally are actually quite receptive to it. They're, again, with so many survivors, they hear they 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 know of people or, or they hear stories about the potential side effects of 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 you know surgery and more extensive surgery. So an opportunity to have less surgery, if if we believe that there's enough data to that will be it'll be equally as effective in controlling their cancer, most patients actually are very receptive to. I think, especially minimizing surgery and radiation. Medication-wise, again, p- the, the studies are typically, you could either get, you could randomize into the standard treatment arm and or this other combination, which we believe maybe could be even better than than standard, than than the current standard. So when you present it like that, I mean, I always start by saying, first of all, you're not a guinea pig. I mean, that's, that's a total misconception miscon- out there. We're not just mm-hmm. making up studies without any control. These are, you know, these are incredibly. These are strongly, heavily vetted, you know, at multiple levels before they would come to a a, a community cancer program like us. So, um, to make sure that they're safe, number one, patient safety is always, always, always the number one priority in any clinical trial. Um, but when you present it as standard versus something potentially better than standard, I would say most patients are are actually quite quite open to it.
1: Okay, that that makes sense. I, I like that. All right. Throughout your career so far, because we've talked about screening, uh, you know earlier. But w- what have been some of the main treatment advances when it comes to breast cancer?
0: So I think in each field there have been advances. Certainly in radiology with screening, in surgery, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's sort of a de-escalation of surgery. You know, we are often able to often able to offer breast conserving surgery more, in part because. There are more effective um, systemic therapies that we can give preoperatively to shrink the tumor. Mm -hmm. There also are newer surgical techniques, you know, using what's called oncoplasty where the surgeon and the breast and the plastic surgeon can work together um, to do like a really nice looking breast conserving surgery. We can therefore take out larger tumors while still conserving the breast and maintain the natural shape and contour to the breast. So we're doing I think the the opportunities for breast conservation have increased with both preoperative therapies and with with the working with our plastic our surgery partners Certainly with lymph node surgery, there has there we've definitely gone away from doing these, you know, routine lymph node dissections. And even yeah. patients with positive nodes now do, do not routinely end up with a full lymph node dissection. Because it's turning out that clinical trials are showing that uh as long as they get adjuvant treatment, their outcomes are the same. They just have a lot less morbidity. So surgery, definitely less less mastectomies, less lymph node dissections, so less surgery, better quality of life. Um, I think for Radiation, um, my gosh, there's so many advances. You know, even for lumpectomy patients, it used to be daily for seven weeks. Now the standard is daily for three to four weeks, and now there are newer protocols coming out, looking at once a day for five days, or maybe once a week for five weeks, or maybe just like you know once a, every other day for five days, so five treatments as opposed to you know sixteen twenty treatments versus as of you know t- even ten years ago it was thirty three treatments. So a shorter radiation. Which you know, if it can give you the same good result, with and make it more convenient for patients, that also increases the desirability of breast cons- breast conservation. I think radiation also has significantly improved. They're doing a lot more partial breast radiation. They're using the three D conformal so that they have you know less exposure to lungs, no exposure to heart. So there's a lot less side effects associated with radiation. There are some centers that offer even prone radiation, or uh, you know, there's diff. They they have definitely come a long way, not only in shortening the length of treatment often, and or making it much more precise and targeted, and therefore having a lot less side effects. That would be radiation, and then finally, in terms of um, medical oncology, uh, I would say that in general, for chemotherapy, once again, de escalation. We're I, compared to where I, you know when I started twenty years ago in practice. Uh, I think that in general there is a lot less chemo given, you know, for for three quarters of our patients have ER, positive HER2 negative breast cancers. And, you know, for those patients, uh, it used to be if most stage one didn't get chemo, almost every stage two patient that I saw got chemotherapy. And now we're using these, you know, genomic tests like Oncotype or Mammaprint to select who really needs it and try to avoid chemo and those who really don't. And that applies to node negative and node positive patients, which is pretty astounding. So a lot less of those ERPR positive HER2 negative breast cancers are, are getting chemotherapy. Only the ones that really need it get it. And then, you know, targeted therapy for HER2 breast cancer has gotten better and triple negative, of course, you know, with the advent of immunotherapy, um, certainly in the neoadjuvant setting has has shown to be even more effective at eradicating their disease. So, you know, remains to be see seen if we're going to see um, improvements in um, in in overall survival, but certainly studies suggest that... The, the higher the com- complete path response rates in the neoadjuvant setting, the higher the overall survival. So I think that these advances in the on the medical side also certainly will will continue to um, push towards a higher 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 um, survival rates. So I think the area that really needs continued attention—I think it's increasing—but we need more of—is in the idea of survivorship. Survivorship is a very sexy concept right now, you know, but it actually goes beyond the the term. There are these patients are our patients are surviving, but they are living with the side effects of what we're doing to them, and no treatment is for free. Every single side effect can have short and long term side effects. So how do we? How do we uh, uh, ameliorate some of the short term? But more importantly, I would imagine, is how do we minimize or avoid some of those long term side effects?
1: Okay. Okay. I, I like that. How about, like, as, as far as surgical techniques, is there, are there any things like uh, uh, kind of the near future that, you, that you're seeing kind of start no, to come up? I would say
0: probably the biggest one is going to be a, a, a couple of things. Number one is um, they're looking, the studies have already been done. There was a small trial, the ICE 3 trial, looking at cryotherapy. Hmm, okay. So for small uh, T one T1 tumors, node neg clinically node negative, again the ERPR positive hurting. So these favorable prognostic indicators. And again, this is where that the 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 screening comes into play, right? If we can find these small early like favorable tumors, there are studies suggesting that cryotherapy may be used in lieu of surgery, which is which is very exciting for some of these older patients who may not want to undergo a general anesthetic for a surgical procedure. yeah. Uh, so cryotherapy. So, and then, the, and then, and then one other area would be in the neoadjuvant setting, especially with these triple negative or the HER2 positive cancers where we, they have, they have at least 50% complete path response rates, right? If surgeons and radiology, if we can find, and pathology, if the three of us together can find a way to reliably determine the patient has a path, a complete path response, Without doing surgery, then maybe those patients can avoid surgery altogether. So that actually is a subject of a of a clinical trial. MD Anderson did a small pilot study. Um, We're looking at actually doing it here at Cedars using surgery, but then avoiding radiation if they have a complete response. So again, that ties into the advances. So it's so exciting because advances in one field drive advances in the next field, right? So as as systemic therapy improves and the effectiveness of neoadjuvant therapy improves. That, again, may drive towards less surgery or less radiation as a result. But it is working closely with, you know, we need we need our radiologists and our pathologists to find a way to work with us to ensure that we can confidently, you know, determine a complete path response rate. But so surgery is moving towards, again, less surgery. So eventually there will be a subset of patients that will have cryotherapy in the office, which is ice basically creating like ice balls using argon gas in the office. Um, and there will be probably a select group of patients who presented with very aggressive cancers that will end up not having surgery at all. It's it's a very very exciting time to um, be a breast cancer surgeon.
1: Yeah, that's amazing, and you're you're right. That is exciting. It sounds like the the, the future uh, will be exciting and uh, very promising. You know, Dr. Shen, this has been a really interesting conversation. It- it was great to get your perspective kind of from the outside of pathology and just the things you're doing in surgery. And I appreciate your time. So Dr. Jeannie Shen, thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much for this opportunity. And thank you and have a great evening.
1: If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a clip from my interview with medical student Harry Gaffney. He tells a couple wild stories about his time with the Royal Flying Doctor Service and we also talk about and debunk a lot of myths about pathology. Here's a quick bite.
2: I had a, a coffee with a pathologist colleague earlier this year. Just, just I, I wanted to pick their brain a bit about pathology and what what they chose because they've had the same misconceptions. Um, I, I've spoken to their colleagues and they go, "Oh, I can't believe this person got into into pathology. They're such a people person." And I, I, anyway, I caught up with them and. They, they tell me multiple stories, uh, which clearly displays a significant level of personal care for patients and um, where these slides came from. And one story that sticks in my mind is that they they happened to diagnose an adenocarcinoma on a slide of this patient, and they wrote the report on it. They noticed they couldn't stop thinking about that patient, and they, they eventually ended up calling up the surgeon that this biopsy came from to, to follow up on the case and get an update, and the surgeon gave their information about it. But that wasn't enough. so they. They sat on it for a bit and eventually ended up seeing the patient themselves just to see how they were feeling. They sat with that patient for an hour and just discussed, you know, everything that possible and had a real connection.
1: You can hear the rest of my conversation with Harry Gaffney in episode 117. All right. So great big thanks to Dr. Jeannie Shen. Now, I I was telling her after we finished recording that often when I go to a pathology conference, anytime there's a surgeon speaking, that's the lecture that everybody loves and everybody talks about. So I hope this conversation uh, resonates with everyone out there in the same way. And of course, the main lesson from this episode is that collaborative attitude that she was talking about How it's important for the surgeon, the radiologist, the pathologist, the oncologist, everybody to all work together to get the best care, the best treatment for the patient, especially when it comes to things like cancer. And it's great that she's passing this on to her residents and fellows and having them spend some time in the pathology lab so they can understand what we do in there and get a better idea of the importance of pathology to the overall patient care. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Hey, don't forget you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. Together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, you can check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank. And I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.